Hello, and welcome back to the HSPAN podcast, your go-to podcast for longevity policy discussion. I'm your host, Dylan Livingston. Today, we will be joined by Mitchell Lee, CEO and co-founder of Aura Biomedical. In this episode, I wanted to learn about his introduction to the field, the longevity ecosystem in Seattle, and how Aura is harnessing the power of artificial intelligence to advance longevity research. Without further ado, here's Mitchell Lee. Welcome back to another installation of the H-Band podcast. Our uh, guest today is Mitchell Lee, the CEO and founder of Aura Biomedical. Mitchell, can you say hi to everybody? Hey, everybody. Great to be here, Dylan. Yeah, thank you so much for making time. It's I know it's early over there in Seattle, but uh, you know I'm glad we were able to uh, find time to get this done. So, Mitchell, I was introduced to you uh, via Matt Caberline, right? And so I think there's this, I, I kind of want to start off talking about your relationship with him. And I, I want to talk about the, the greater Seattle longevity industry. We're going to get into Aura Biomedical in a moment here, because I do want to give you some time to talk about and the company that you're building. That's how we met. So can you kind of talk about your relationship at you know, with Matt Caberlines, maybe uh, talk about your undergrad work at UW and just generally what's the longevity ecosystem like in Seattle? Yeah, absolutely. So I did my doctoral research with Matt Caberline. I was finishing up a master's degree up north, figuring out what the next steps were. I started becoming fascinated by the biology of aging and how that has a, a molecular and genetic logic that underpins it. And I was looking around to find the people who were doing that groundbreaking research. And it just happened to be the case that Matt Caberline was down in Seattle at University of Washington. I've fallen in love with Western Washington since leaving my home in Oklahoma about 20 years ago. So didn't really want to leave, saw that there was a world-class researcher just down the road. And, you know, it was only once I got to UW and started my PhD studies that I found out that UW is one of the world-leading centers for the study of the biology of aging. Uh, in the U.S., there's about seven of these centers. They're called Nathan Schock Centers of Excellence in the Basic Biology of Aging. And UW has had a storied program for decades. So not only did I go into an ecosystem where Matt Caberline, somebody who's been pivotal in really understanding the molecular genetics and really understanding how to go from under thinking about aging to actually treating and targeting aging, you know, I had that experience, but then also this larger group of scientists who studied all different manners of skeletal aging, neurodegenerative disease, cancer biology, and just about every aspect of biology and how it impacts with aging. So it was a, it's an incredibly fruitful ecosystem. So Oklahoma, so it's a thriving ecosystem in Seattle. How is it in Oklahoma? Do you have some work to do there or is there any activity that you know of? You know, funny enough, Oklahoma City is actually another major center for the biology of aging. They have a world-class set of researchers. My favorite Alzheimer's disease researcher, she happens to have her lab down there. I didn't grow up very close to that center of gravity, though. <laughs> Where are you from exactly? So I'm from the panhandle of Oklahoma. I'm from a town of about 300 people. All right. Nice. Nice. Wow. 
All right. Well, that's interesting. One of the things that I always think about is how can we make this less of a coastal issue, right? Longevity and this effort to live healthier for longer and make it something that the you know fly over middle of the countries also really get behind right because it's not something that should discriminate by geographic or political ideology or anything like that it should be something that everybody pushes for together so i'm going to be picking your mind more about how we can do that because you're you're my first oklahoma longevity friend Mitchell. nice nice there's a few good centers in the middle of the country you know san antonio's got a great center oklahoma city a university of minnesota and university of wisconsin are all powerhouses in the Midwest and South or, or wh- wherever you put Texas at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So big, it's in like three different places. Um, yep. yep. Um, awesome. So something you touched on before in one of your previous responses is the ecosystem in Washington is not just longevity researchers. It's, you know, it's everybody, right? And you mentioned cancer biology specifically. And so that that is part of your background, too. I'm always interested to hear how people progress from what they were doing to what what they're doing now in the longevity field. So can you kind of talk about how that cancer biology background has played a role in your thinking and the way that you have you know, taken your career path? What influence has that played on you? Yeah, absolutely. So Matt's lab and the University of Washington, that center for aging research is couched within the Department of Pathology at the University of Washington School of Medicine. So there was always a strong integration between aging and age-associated diseases. That was really prominent at UW, even before it was kind of formally conceptualized as this idea of geroscience, that there's this fundamental link between biological aging and disease. So there would be cancer biologists thinking about mechanisms of aging and how those impact on cancer, individuals who study heart disease thinking about how basic molecular aging influences that, neurodegenerative disease. You really had the opportunity to see those integrations. And for me, my interest in cancer biology and aging then were really parallel. Uh, I was thinking about both how do you think about how aging predisposes to different diseases and also how age-targeting interventions could modulate or prevent diseases and aging. So that was some of my early graduate work was to model drivers of cancer biology in a, a small little budding yeast. And we asked how those drivers of cancer influence cellular aging and also how things that promote healthy aging delay kind of these negative phenotypes or negative behaviors associated with cancer cells. So first and foremost, what you're doing with Aura, which we will get into, sounds like it can be applicable to all of these different fields, not just aging biology, right? Is that is that anywhere in your thought process with building Aura? We can get into the, the company if you we, we, let, 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 actually, let's let's do that. But can you answer that after you kind of give a brief overview of Aura? How, what role do these other kind of disease states play in, in what you're trying to do at your company? Is it, you know, are you focused directly on aging or are you focusing on like creating therapeutics down the line? Repair, are you repairing damage or are you, you know, delaying the onset? Like what's the focus, you know, in regards to how cancer biology has influenced your background on, on what you're doing at Aura? Yeah, absolutely. So all of that is really strongly rooted in this idea of geroscience. 
Geroscience as a concept has been around for maybe close to 10, 15 years now, but it's this insight that biologists of aging had that, you know, there is this fundamental connection between what goes wrong in aging and how that drives the diseases that ultimately limit our healthy lifespan. So things like cancer, heart disease, late onset diabetes, neurodegeneration, all of these things have as a greatest predisposing factor, the age of the person. So there's this fundamental connection there. So by actually studying and thinking about and targeting aging, you can actually identify interventions and therapeutic strategies across the board that go after broad and even kind of not necessarily the most intuitive disease states either. So just one uh, tangential example of that, out of Matsalab, there was a lot of really great research on juvenile mitochondrial disease. And juvenile mitochondrial disease, the models of that, you can suppress those disease states robustly with things like rapamycin, things that target the fundamental aging processes. So even things not typically associated with aging are impacted by age targeting interventions. So developing interventions that actually go after the mechanisms of aging is really a way to transform health in the 21st century. And that's exactly what we do at Aura Biomedical. So we identify and develop these small molecules that target those fundamental mechanisms of aging. We set ourselves apart from other companies by really focusing on what matters. We focus by identifying lifespan and health span altering compounds. We do that with a robotics and AI system that allows us to perform phenotypic analysis in live animals with lifespan and health span as those primary endpoints. And then once you have those interventions, you figure out how to utilize them and deploy them. You test them against different disease models. You figure out different ways to get pathways into FDA clinical trials. You can also look at direct-to-consumer spaces, so things associated with skincare, cosmetics, supplements, animal health products, you know, the utility and broad applicability of longevity interventions, you know, we're really just scratching the surface of, but they're so widely deployable and useful. Absolutely. Uh, we, we were talking a little bit before the show and something that you said well I, I want you to get into the million molecule challenge if you can get into there but what you said is the, the end result will be 200 years of scientific research on interventions that taking place in five years which i mean that is revolutionary i mean for the aging and longevity industry too but my my, my question is before you get into the million molecule challenge does can aura's robotics and ai platform can it target therapeutics for cancer or for Alzheimer's, or is it just programmed to focus on, you know, the root causes of aging and geroscience, or can it create like some sort of immunology sort of therapeutic that's, you know, I'm, I'm using immu- immu- uh, immunotherapy as an example, because, you know, actually it's probably a bad example. Chemotherapy, let's say like a, like a you know, like a chemotherapy type of cancer, you know, that's not necessarily related to the biology of aging, but, you know, can be useful in the treating a disease. Do you, can Aura's platform, you know, shift its focus from like a, a preventative medicine findings to like disease treatment findings or like, how does that work? What, does yeah. that make sense? I, I don't, I don't even know if that makes sense, but. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it does. We can utilize the platform and we do. 
So that's the beauty of phenotypic analysis and live animals. So instead of target-based approaches where you say this molecular target is important for cancer or heart disease or some particular disease, and then you devise a method to find things that impact that target, what we do is start from the other side. We say, here is a model that had, that dies from cancer, neurodegenerative disease, aspects of heart disease. We can put that into our system and directly probe for interventions that extend the lifespan and health of those disease models. So instead of thinking about target and then going from target to disease, we go from disease to target. Okay. Well, so, so something that just pops and popped in my head is this sounds like a really serious undertaking in AI and computer science and f- physics and, and and robotics and you know so how how did you come how, where did this idea come from who you know was where did how how did this come about this this worm bot can you tell us about a little bit about how this came about and how you can even create such a machine that that does what I just said before 200 years of scientific research in five in five years I mean that's that's one of the goals of worm bot or is that just the million molecule challenge they're they're kind of one and the same yeah. so yeah the worm bot and the technology to do high throughput automated survival analysis is something that had been percolating in the Caberline lab for years the Caberline lab has a long history of doing kind of throughput redefining science. They are the only group in the whole world that has screened an entire genome for genetic changes that impact lifespan. Yeah, that's a a longer story. I won't be able to get into it, but there's a background of that in that lab. So thinking about ways how to increase throughput, how to be able to do more and just go through more science quickly has been at the heart of the lab for a while. And so that gave rise to the WormBot, which is a robotics platform created by Dr. Jason Pitt while he was in the lab. That allows us to do data collection for multiple populations of C. elegans all at once, up to 144 populations at the same time. So that's the robotics platform. Uh, Dr. Ben Blue, who's our CTO at Aura, he was a grad student in Matt's lab as well. He came on the scene and started to develop our AI and neural network approaches. So how you track the animals, how you call phenotypes, how you look at the animals through time and see a lot of different changes in behavior and movement, all these things that have an age-associated change that are also predictive of the health of the animals. He was able to put all of that together in our neural net AI that we use for our data capture and analysis pipeline that those two pieces form the heart of Aura Biomedical. With that throughput redefining device, the WormBot AI, as we call both of them together, as you mentioned, yeah, we're doing or proposing what we call the million molecule challenge. So within five years, by growing up a fleet of these WormBot platforms, we can screen a million interventions in five years. So to give some context to that, if you take all of the literature over the last 50 years of aging research, maybe 100,000 interventions have been tested. So that's about maybe 5,000 interventions a year get tested for lifespan and health span uh, on average. So at that rate, it'll take 200 years to screen through a million interventions. 
With our platform, we can do a million interventions in five years. That'll allow us to accelerate longevity interventions, discovery, find new aging targets, figure out combination interventions, and really get at the most efficacious therapeutics. You know, where we're at right now in the field in longevity medicine is we have a couple of early positive results. We've got things like rapamycin that show the potential of longevity therapeutics, but they're by no means the best. We have not even scratched the surface of all the chemical diversity that's out there to really find the best of the best. And then think about how those best of the best combine with each other to create even new, more efficacious breakthrough therapeutics. So we're just on the cusp of understanding the chemical space surrounding longevity interventions. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why it's so exciting for sure. One of the things that you brought up though the fact that these drugs originally are being screened in C. elegant, right? So, I mean, a lot of the time you see drugs are very effective in, you know, C. elegans, and then they're sometimes a little less effective in mice. And then, you know, as you kind of go up the, the, the ladder, you know, sometimes when they reach humans, they're, you know, they fail in human trials, right? And so th- basically the point is, you know, things that work in small organisms and small animals and small uh, critters and whatnot, they don't always work in us. And so is there a way to test, you know, all these interventions on mice or another animal or another organism? How, how is, is, is that taken into consideration at all or no? And, and why? Yeah, yeah. No, we're, we're in the early days of longevity medicine. So, you know, right now we don't have a positive hit. We don't have one thing that we've seen that works in large mammals. You know, a lot of us are bullish, particularly on things like rapamycin, some of the dog studies that are happening, some of the human work that's going on right now is promising, but we don't have anything on the board yet. So we don't really know how this pipeline is going to work. Longevity interventions tend to be in highly evolutionarily conserved cellular and molecular mechanisms. You know, that's something that kind of underwrites the consistency of aging phenotypes that we see across evolutionary distance. So there's some people who say that, you know, by getting at those molecular drivers of aging, there's going to be enrichment. It's going to be more likely that it translates. But that's an untested hypothesis. Uh, For us, we start out and do preliminary screening in worms. We then test those interventions we identify across different disease models to find disease models, again, in worms that have efficacy. And then we do the mammalian validation. So test the things in mice models and human cells and other mammalian systems that are best suited to validate those interventions for that particular indication and then move forward with that. So we start at C. elegans, which is a little different starting point, but it ends up going through some fairly well, well-worn preclinical development pipelines. Okay. So, so the C. elegans is basically just to give you a, it's like a starting point kind of, right? It's like we, you know, we're going to start at this because we know if a drug doesn't work in a C. elegant, it's not going to work in a human probably, right? Is, the, is that the thought? It, you know, with screening, you can think of it as a sim. 
you're pouring a bunch of chemicals through a sieve. The things that stick that we want to pursue further are based off of our hypothesis that the mechanisms of aging are the things to target to fight disease. Let's find things that target the mechanisms of aging in the worm and then translate those on further. So we find those chemicals enrich for those compounds and then move those into advanced development. Okay, okay, okay. So there is no therapeutic that okay okay I, i'm trying to understand this myself so forgive me for asking uh, simple questions here but i do find it quite fascinating because you know that is one of the big issues and that's one of the biggest complaints that we kind of hear at a4li is uh, you know how can we how can we bring better drugs to to market sooner right yeah. and one way is by testing as many as we can to be uh, to make the rate of success when going through clinical trials higher, right? You know, if there's only going to be a hundred thousand, you know, clinical trial studies in a year, we want to, you know, uh, raise the percentage uh, of success so that more can hit the market. So I think, you know, what Aura is trying to do is very much on that kind of trajectory to help that mission. So I, I find it very exciting. And then, so here's my other question though. So are are you guys looking to spin out so, so you guys find an intervention that works in C. elegant. How does it uh, go from there? Are you guys going to be looking to uh, develop the therapeutic that you find that works in the C. elegant and then take it fully through the uh, drug development pipeline? Are you going to like have partners that help you develop these drugs? Is, what's that look like? Sure, sure. But, you know, just to piggyback on your your last thing for just one second, you know, the, you know, we do see incredibly high rates of failure with like heart disease, cancer, neurodegenerative disease is particularly bad. And, you know, some people argue that it's really kind of the quality of the models, you know, the early preclinical models for mice it's not a natural phenotype. So these animals don't typically get neurodegenerative disease or heart disease. The types of cancer they get are even a bit distinct from the ones that we get. So it's modeling something that's kind of a, not the best model for going forward. You know, by thinking about something that is a natural phenotype in these animals like aging, there's some idea that maybe that's going to help enrich and improve translation as it's going forward, because it is something that's physiologically not as contrived as some of the methods. So in terms of your other question, you know, how we, oh, sorry, I lost the thread on that. What was the other question? <laughs> what? So you identify the therapeutic that works in the C. elegans, right? What happens next? You, you, you are, is Aura Biomedical creating the, you know, doing the drug development and trying to push it to market? Are you guys partnering, trying to sell the, you know, IP? Like, what's the, what does that look like exactly? Yes. Yeah. So with our strategy, we're going to be identifying hundreds of new interventions that increase healthy lifespan that can be applied across multiple different disease models or into multiple different sectors of the direct-to-consumer market. So that's more than what we can do on our own. So we are doing early partnerships, doing licensing of that IP to direct-to-consumer companies, biotechs, pharmaceutical companies. That sets the kind of early phase of our development and discovery. Once we get to that point where we're generating revenue and we're self-financing, then with the top assets that we've identified, we're likely to pursue more internal development. 
But that kind of partnership and deploying these interventions, we see as a really good pathway to generate revenue quickly, which sets us apart, and also a pathway to just get these interventions out to the people who need them. We want to get these onto the market, get these into the hands of the the people and patients who will benefit from these interventions. So that's one of the the fastest ways we think to be able to do that. And then I had another question about that, but I, I lost it. So I'm going to cut this. I'm going to cut me saying this out right now. <laughs> yeah, if you cut my lost the thread bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we do it. That's how we do it. So what I was, what I, what I guess I'll ask is, so you said quick to revenue and they talk with a healthy mix of investors and, and scientists, entrepreneurs, but investors are definitely a, a large group of people I discuss because the work that you and I and the industry does affects them. And, you know, one of the things that I see from investors who are thinking, but not actively in the longevity field is, you know, how can I ensure that, or, or, you know, what's the best return on investment possibility here, right? And generating revenue in the short term is very enticing investment opportunity, especially specifically in the biotech industry. In any investment, it's, it's enticing, but specifically in the biotech industry. So, can you talk more about that? Like how you guys kind of plan to structure the business and, you know, what does like success look like for Aura in, in five, 10 years? Like what is the the, the bigger picture? Yeah, absolutely. No, you're a hundred percent right. You know, getting to return on investment, you know, thinking about the investors is important. They're a big heart of facilitating, getting this research to move forward, getting this out to patients. So, you know, they are a shareholder in this big longevity biotech ecosystem. With us, our plan is to first focus on natural products. So screen through natural products, find combinations that extend lifespan, and then use those for partnered out licensing to direct to consumer companies. So we've had some great conversations with skincare companies in particular. Uh, there's some excellent data showing that topical uh, application of longevity interventions can promote skin health and fight skin aging. Uh, that field in general wants to embrace the cutting edge science, but they're a little bit behind. So we have an opportunity there to really develop the next generation of groundbreaking natural product combinations that can then go into those products. So that's one of the first steps is to move into the direct-to-consumer markets with world-class, rigorous science-backed natural product combinations. While we're doing that, we're also moving forward on a rare disease repurposing track. So you can take FDA-approved compounds, test those against rare diseases, find new indications, and then move those forward in development. So the what's enticing there is, again, the pathway to revenue, the pathway to out-licensing and getting it onto the market is accelerated because you're using FDA-approved compounds that have already went through safety trials. So you're just giving, you know, a new, a new job to an existing intervention for these different rare diseases. So we see that as another accelerated pathway. That'll take us into the first five years of the company. With that, combined with the large unbiased screening that we're doing, we want to hit a million interventions within that five-year mark. And then going forward after that is really spinning up and developing these brand new chemistries that we're going to be identifying in the next five years for, again, rare disease, age-associated disease, and just pivoting those and deploying those as widely as we can. 
that's fascinating because it sounds like there's like there there is this short and long term vision here, right? And and both are very practical. I, I see the steps you laid out, so that's awesome. Are so so so? Can you talk about this chemistry a little bit more? Can you talk? Yeah, about yeah. sure, sure. So yeah, what you do? You find a lifespan. Oh, sorry, good. You called it rare chemistry. Would you call it? Oh, so rare disease repurposing, but novel chemistry. Novel chemistry. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So find an intervention. This is a, a story that we've actually got cooking right now. So we've found an mTOR inhibitor that works better than rapamycin at extending lifespan. So this is something that, you know, given the hands who's doing the work and C. elegans, rapamycin extends about 10 to 20%. This compound is extending consistently closer to about 35 to 40% increased lifespan. So what we can do with that, that's a new dual kinase inhibitor. We can take that to medicinal chemists, have them create derivative libraries, put little chemical moieties on it, change the structure a little bit, add a little bit here, take away a little bit there, then screen through those libraries to find things that are even more optimized, that extend lifespan even better. And you know, if there are side effects we identify or anything like that, mitigate those side effects even better. So find those optimized lifespan extending interventions. And so then that gets us brand new chemistries new chemistries that we can get composition of matter IP around. And then that's something that's a, a really strong revenue proposition for us and gets us into, you know, really how to figure out and identify the best of the best, even with stuff we know, like mTOR inhibitors, you know, even within that class of compounds, it's unlikely that rapamycin is going to be the best mTOR inhibitor. So how do you find those lifespan optimized mTOR inhibitors and other things for different chemical classes? Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Fascinating. Huh. So how big is the team over there? It sounds like it's a pretty well thought out vision. If I had some money, I, I might throw some, I might make an investment. It seems like you guys kind of have a, have a pretty strong plan here. How many employees are over there at Orta or at Biomedical right now? Yeah, right now we're three full-time employees. So myself, yeah, yeah, we're we're scrappy. We can get a lot done with a few amount of hands, but growing out the team is the next goal as we move forward. So yeah, it's myself, Dr. Ben Blue is our chief technology officer who runs the worm bots, develops the AI and the back end, and our director of invertebrate research, Michael Muir, he runs all of the lab out lab research and purchasing for that. So we're actually actually a team that's poised for growing and doing high throughput studies. We're all Caberline Lab alums. We see how those systems work and we're ready to start building that out at Aura. Wow. Three. That's only Just three. Only yep. Six ends. Yep. Yeah, that's what, you know, the Jimi Hendrix experience was just three guys also, you know, and they did groundbreaking <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Rock and roll. Um, cool. Awesome. All right. Well, so I am fascinated. I am excited to hear more and follow your and Aura's journey. I want to ask you some, some sort of political type questions because I'm thinking back to the beginning of the conversation and uh, thinking about how you're from Oklahoma and thinking about how I want to make this a nationally thought about and uh, important issue, right? This longevity let's increase healthy lifespan issue needs to be something in the forefront of people's minds from Boston to San Francisco and everywhere in between. So let me ask you as someone from Oklahoma, what do you think the difference 
in the conversation needs to be when you're talking to someone from a blue city versus a red rural district. Do you think that there is a difference in message or messaging from advocates in, in you know in the industry to those different groups, or do you think they more or less will uh, vibe with the same message because it's universal? I think there are some differences in messaging. I'm not sure exactly how to structure that messaging just offhand. So the way how I think about it is, you know, lifespan extending interventions tend to have the best benefit in the organisms that have the shortest lifespans. That's something we've seen reproducibly throughout decades of research. The shorter lived you are, the better benefit you get from these interventions. They're equitable in a certain kind of way. So if you think about how that would relate to human populations, you know, we see that survival and health stratifies based on sex, race, socioeconomic status, where those people in rural areas are have, you know, health disadvantages and there are real health disparities that exist there. And those are compounded across, you know, race and sex. And I think we are kind of structuring our geroscience interventions and clinical trials maybe a little off. You know, we should be thinking about how to preferentially reach out to those populations who are the shortest lived, who have the ben- uh, the opportunity to reap the biggest benefits from these interventions and start working with those groups. You know, the uh, commonly what you see in longevity clinical trials, you say, okay, I'm going to select, you know, people who are 65 years old, but who have no health problems, no other health-related conditions. You know, if you take geroscience really seriously, maybe those people aren't biologically aging in a relevant kind of way. You know, they don't have the diseases of aging associated with it. If you were to actually look at the populations who were suffering from age-associated diseases at an early state and then work on improving their health, I think you'd see a cleaner outcome quicker and it would help these people. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the goal of the industry is to help people in the near and long-term live as, live as well as they can for as long as they can. So I agree with you there. And then also, I mean, I, I think, that may hammer home the point that, you know, this is a legitimate, you know, field that needs more focus, right? Like, I, I think the first real win this field has, you know, I, I say this a lot, there needs to be a chat GPT moment for longevity, where there's something that actually kind of works for the masses. And and so, yeah, no, that, those are definitely great points. So let me ask you this. So, so if, have you, since you're in UW, have you had any interactions with your, you know, state, local representatives, your congressperson, senators? I'm sure they're interested uh, in what University of Washington is doing. Have, have they, you know, come by the Nathan Schock Center? Have, have, have you had any interactions with them while, while at UW? What's, what, from, from your experience, what is their level of uh, knowledge and awareness about the longevity and aging field? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, yeah, I'm from a, I live in the middle of Seattle, just a few blocks away from University of Washington. And yeah, our congressional representative, you know, it's it's very clear that uh, it's uh, Pramila Jayapal. She, yeah, she's very invested in higher education, but in terms of getting to the core of biology of aging or thinking about cutting edge research, I don't know. I, I think there's a disconnect. And I think that disconnect is probably 
prevalent and absolutely deleterious. <laughs> you know, we, you know, to be able to see the research and to understand the cutting edge and to see these things that can have health impacts across populations across the country, to, to miss out on that or to have that slowed artificially just because the right person wasn't there at the right time to see the benefit taking hold is, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. At the end of the day, it impacts individuals' lives. Yeah, sorry. I just had I just had them some things. Uh, so, so let me ask you this, then, Mitchell. How do we get, in your opinion, how do we get politicians, policymakers more aware what's what's going on at these centers of excellence in you know Silicon Valley and Boston and New York and all these big cities where longevity ecosystems are forming? How do we, in your opinion, get lawmakers more aware and, and invested? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, part of it is the work that A4LI is doing. So, you know, it's very clear that in a short time, you guys have had a tremendous impact in bringing the message of Gero science into the halls of power, increasing that, growing that up, making it such that, you know, not just reaching into the halls of power, but reaching into Main Street. How do we do kind of larger marketing? How do we do larger PR to get people to understand this? Because, you know, when I talk to people and I say I want to increase healthy lifespan, a lot of times it triggers sort of dystopian intuitions about living forever or being unhealthy or decrepit through an advanced time period. And that misses the point entirely. The point is improving health across the aging process and compressing age-associated chronic illness, pushing it as far back into the lifespan and making it less of a relevant human issue throughout so much of our life. That's a benefit for everybody. That's a benefit for everybody, for our pets, for other animals we care about. It's something that should be the easiest sell in the world is to get people to, to appreciate that you don't have to have a chronic disease that early for that long and it shouldn't impact your health that way yeah it's weird it's it, i don't understand why it's so difficult to sell not being sick to people <laughs> it's so ingrained in the human condition you know that was something oh back in the 90s there was a, an early government ethics panel that i think it was focused yeah they had some longevity stuff in there and a lot of it was sort of an argument against immortality and you know I, i'm not I'm not an immortalist by any means, but, you know, one of the arguments embedded in there was like, well, chronic illness is what it is to be human in some ways. It's like, well, I think we could, I think we could, we'd be all right as humans with that, with less chronic illness. Yeah. Human to, you know, have a 40% chance of dying from a disease as an infant, you know, but we fixed that. You know, we fixed these problems as humans. That's the whole that's, that's right. Of being a human, we have the brain capacity to manipulate, you know, our environment to fix these problems. So yeah, now I, I what, what? So let me ask you this: What, you know, I think you probably know some of the counter arguments that like mainstream folk might have against launch, you know, pursuing advancements in this field. Which one makes you laugh the most, and which one gives you the most worry? That where you say, "Oh wow, this is something that people might be," you know catching on to, or we need to worry about this or, you know, reorient ourselves as an industry to uh, stop this message from being front and center because it's wrong and, you know, it, it could be harmful. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, the the one that we just mentioned, this kind of Hobbesian, you know, what, you know, to suffer is to be human, or, you know, it's going to be a short, miserable time while you're here. That's the one that's the most absurd. It's like, no, we should, we should, you know, we don't want to have that in place. We could actually fight against that. That doesn't have to be the case. That's the one that I think is the least serious. The one that has the most impact, I think, and carries the most weight are more sort of carrying capacity and global economic burden kind of arguments. Things where, you know, people say, well, if you're having more people on the earth for longer, isn't that going to stress our limited resources? Doesn't that end up creating uh, global burdens, especially in a time of populations booming and resources changing in these fundamental ways? You know, how, you know, does it make sense to think about keeping people alive for longer? And, you know, I, I see the intuitive appeal of it, but when you context that in the actual day-to-day run runnings of the global economy, it starts to fall apart. You know, if you had more people who were not sick, but they happen to live a little longer, you would spend less of your federal dollars, less of your GDP on keeping sick people sick and alive. Yeah, I don't know what the percentage is, but a substantial proportion of the US GDP is spent doing just that, keeping people sick and alive. Mm -hmm. If those people weren't sick, if they were still contributing and doing what they're doing in society, it would shrink that burden. So, you know, as we think about healthcare crises and think about how we fund social security and medicare going forward one way to fix that is to have fewer people who are reliant on those programs and one way to do that is by just improving their health across the duration of their life this idea isn't like new it's called the longevity dividend and there's a, a few different you know pretty famous scientists who've thought a lot about it and i i definitely count myself as a proponent of that longevity dividend idea Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it is something that we definitely push at A4LI as well. It's one of the most, it's definitely something that lights a fire under policymakers, you know, in their bellies a little more than I think some of the other arguments, just because it's, you know, it's data, right? It's something you can see, like there can be economic analyses on on, on the longevity dividend and you can come back with hard data. So, you know, I do think that is something that as an industry, we to dispel and also, to, you know, I, I mean, this is also something I, I talk about a lot. And I don't know if you do, but the fact that we are, you know, with fertility rates going down, right, and people getting older, generations shrinking, you know, there actually is, might be an underpopulation crisis, right? Not an overpopulation crisis. So the way to prevent that is by, uh, you know, pursuing the development of longevity therapeutics. So. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, the one that worries me, and I, I just want to get your thoughts on it, is that this is going to drive inequality. That at least on the on the on the more left wing, I found to be their kind of rallying cry for why they this is not good. What are your thoughts on that? I'd say two things. You know, one kind of going back to what we were talking about. I see longevity and age targeting therapeutics as important ways that we could actually compress and shrink health disparities. You know, it doesn't get to the main issues. Those are larger societal issues that we still have to grapple with. But if you could make it such that people didn't bear the brunt of those on their health, 
that's an important thing to move forward. So I see the, it actually being the opposite It actually being able to shrink disparities, at least when you think about health outcomes. On the other side of it, you know, if there are these larger societal and economic benefits, I think it would make sense for countries to make sure that those interventions are widely available to populations. You know, one way that that could be the case is, you know, right now, things like rapamycin. You know, rapamycin is off-label, off-patent, unless there's a major boom and supplies dwindle, it isn't the most expensive medication. Right. You know, as we go forward and we develop even better ones and more uh, more efficacious ones become on the scene, that's really where I think government intervention and thinking about how to make these more widely available is going to come into play. And if that means, you know, creating it such that there's a, a small prescription fee, you know, a dollar a pill for a longevity intervention, and it fights all these different diseases at once, that's an economic benefit. That's a societal benefit. That's compressing health disparities. That really cuts against these sort of inequality issues, I think, in a, a pretty fundamental way. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, I'm glad you said it. That is what I, you know, that that's my message. We share the same message, which I think also is good because one of the other things that I want to hopefully see more uh, in this field is um, consensus around messaging and uh, language, right? And so I'm glad we're kind of on the same page here. And uh, yeah, so I, I guess I'm, I'm looking at the time. We, we only have about seven minutes-ish left here. So let's kind of get into some kind of existential, bigger, uh, more meta questions. So what do you think the meaning of life is, Mitchell? Hmm. Oh, wow. I don't know. We find our own meanings in our lives is what I'd say. I, I don't think there's a, a receive one thing, one size fits all to it. You know, to have a sense of purpose, to have a sense of that you're doing something that's important, whether that is love and developing and growing love in your families or doing something to benefit society, doing something towards a greater good in those kind of ways, I, I think that's probably the most valuable thing we can do with our lives. You didn't expect that one, did you? No, not really. As a, as a student of philosophy, I should have an answer to that that's more easy. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, I didn't expect to ask that one either, but... <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Um, what gets you out of bed every day? What gets you excited, not just about uh, the longevity field, but uh, about the world? Because there's so much negative negativity out there now, right? I mean, the, you can't put on, you know, a news channel without, you know, your, your heart rate raising. So what, what makes you hopeful? What keeps you sane? What gives you uh, comfort in, in this crazy world when you get out of bed? Yeah, I, I'm as a biologist, I'm incredibly excited about how biomedical research continues to evolve and progress. You know, if you look through the last couple hundred years, you see that, you know, chemistry had this exponential increase in understanding that happened over a short period of time. Physics did something very similar. Yeah. Over the last few decades, it's been biology and biomedical research that's been showing that exponential increase in understanding. And how that's going to transform the world, I think nobody has a strong idea of, you know, what will it look like in 100 years or 50 years once we've identified these interventions, once we've changed our relationship to time and aging and disease states, 
how will that then influence society? And, you know, I, I think it will create some stress. You know, I think we'll have to figure out what it means to, you know, maybe live a portion of our lives, you know, that we're not just working. Maybe, you know, maybe we're doing more things to study. Maybe we're, you know, thinking about other things. You know, th this is something I think about with friends back home. So, you know, I, I get the re rejoinder a lot where they say, well, you know, I could do this and that, but I'm too old. You know, it's, it's past my time. You know, what if that wasn't true? You know, what if we knew at birth that within a strong, you know, likelihood, we would live until the age of 95, 100, 105, free of chronic illness and cognitively intact? How would that change our relationship to our lives and our what we do? You know, I, I think about it as, you know, I used to make the joke. I don't know if it's true anymore, but if I knew I had another 60 years, I might go back and get that philosophy PhD. Yeah. <laughs> nice. uh, now, you know, I said that as a PhD yeah, student before. Sure. Now I've been through the gauntlet. So maybe I'm more tempered on that. But, you know, it gives you freedom. It gives you autonomy. It gives you the opportunity to really think about what you want, achieve those highest ideals and challenge yourself. So I see this biomedical revolution that we're in the middle of as influencing every facet of our lives and really having a fundamental change on even human psychology. Sure. Well, the the original kind of eruption in biology, you probably know the scientific history of, or, or the history of science better than I do. Uh, but biology, like what the cell was discovered when? In like the 1700s, 1600s, 1700s? Right around there. Around there. So it seems that, and then and then chemistry kind of had its day in the sun in like the 1800s, right? And yep. then the 1900s is, is physics. So I'm starting to see a pattern emerging here that the, the 2000s is going to go back to biology. And what I'm going to be excited for is in 60 or 70 years when they make the the Oppenheimer equivalent for the biology of aging, because that was kind of, you know, the the story of they'll make the the Mitchell Lee story. And when you're we're going to track or a biomedical, you're going to be the Oppenheimer in the story, Mitch. There right. we go. There we go. Well, a good reason to keep Brad Pitt alive and healthy and yeah, in shape for another 50, 60 years. That's a great, <laughs> I need a that's a great question. Is he your celebrity? Is he, he plays you in a, in, a, in a movie of yourself? There we go. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Might as well aim high. <laughs> well, with that, Mitchell, I think we are going to wrap up here, but I'm, I'm glad we got the most important question answered at the very end, at least. Before we sign off here, can you give our audience a little more information about Aura Biomedical, how they can stay up to date with what you're doing, and if there's any big events or you know what press releases that will be coming out soon that we should stay tuned for? Yeah, absolutely. So Aura Biomedical, we are developing and growing the toolkit of healthy aging longevity interventions. We are uh, progressing forward in our plan to develop these interventions. Uh, you can follow us on social media. We're on um, the platform formerly known as Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. Uh, and you can also visit our website at aurabiomedical.com for the latest updates. Awesome. Thank you so much. And Thank you to all of our audience out there listening. We really appreciate your time, your focus. And if you, if anybody you would like to see, join us on the A4LI podcast, please reach out. Thank you. Thank you, Mitchell. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. Take care.
thank you, Mitchell, for making the time to join us today, as well as 100 Plus Capital for sponsoring today's episode. For those of you listening at home, I hope you found this conversation as enlightening and informative as I did. If you have anyone you would like to see make an appearance on our podcast, you can send your suggestions to us at info at a4li.org. HBAN will return soon, but until then, let's live long and prosper.